as we do so, as it is the second Sunday of the month, uh, all families worship together. We think that it's a, a good idea. So there is no children's church, I guess is what I'm saying. And um, this is, as I've said many times, this is a great opportunity to teach your kids um, about corporate public worship and worshiping together as a family. Also, it's a great opportunity to explain what the Lord's Supper is. It is one of those Ebenezer's, right? Y'all were with us in the book of Joshua. It is one of those Ebenezer's, those markers, where when children would ask, Father, what are all these stones about? Why did we build? What is this pile of stones? What does it mean? They would explain how Christ delivered them. And so when your children ask, Mom, Dad, how come we don't get to go to, um, you know, to children's church? We like that. It's a little bit more fun. This is a great opportunity for you to describe and explain what the Lord's Supper is about and why we do what we do. And if you need any resources or help with that, um, feel free. Simone and I would love to help you um, explain the gospel and explain our faith to your children. So we are continuing our study in the book of Galatians. I, I like the book of Galatians because it outlines real nicely. Right? The, the first two chapters are historic or biographical. The second two chapters, uh, the next two chapters are theological, and the final two chapters are practical. And so today we begin chapter three. So Paul is going to begin his theological defense of his gospel. It is the gospel that saves. It is the gospel that is by Christ alone, through faith alone, or I should say by grace alone, through faith alone, by the merits of Christ alone. So let me bring everybody up to speed and give a quick review. This is where um, we've been. And so, uh, let's go one more slide forward. This is what we've learned. The first one is that Paul is dealing with these false teachers who have come into the church. Basically, we read in Acts 15.1, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So basically they're saying, unless you um, believe in Jesus plus something else, you can't be saved. And... Paul was refuting that. So that was the first thing we see. The second then that we will see is that these false teachers denied Paul's apostolic authority. They said Paul's not really an apostle. He's just he's a self-proclaimed or a self uh, yeah, self-proclaimed apostle. He's not really an apostle. He didn't walk with Jesus. He never saw Jesus alive on the earth. He wasn't there at his crucifixion. No, you should pay attention to the real apostles who are in Jerusalem. Paul is not an apostle. So Paul was defending his apostolic authority. And then Paul refutes both these charges by using um, his biographical uh, and historical grounds. And so as they made these charges, this was an ad hominem attack. You know, you attack the messenger rather than the message. And these false teachers would not attack Paul or um, confront Paul on his doctrine. They would just confront Paul on his apostleship. So Paul uh, defends his apostleship. And then finally, our, uh, our last one is that Paul, or the fourth reason, is Paul's message was in agreement with the uh, Jerusalem church. So in other words, the apostles Peter, James, and John that were down in Jerusalem were in agreement with Paul's 
uh, gospel. And they actually, so there was no disagreement as the false teacher said. So that's where we've been. Here's where we're going to go, hopefully. And that is Paul is now going to begin his theological defense um, or his theological refutation of the false teachings that have been infecting the Galatian churches. And remember, uh, the book of Galatians is not written to an individual church, but rather it is written to um, a group of churches. Galatia is a region, and this is written to the churches of Galatia. And so Paul now is going to begin his theological uh, refutation of these false teachers. And he begins with this statement, you foolish Galatians. And people really struggle with this idea. Wow, Paul's so harsh. He must be so mean. You foolish Galatians. Paul, I want to assure you, is not being mean or cruel. People might say, well, that's so unchristlike. No, it's actually very Christ-like. If you look in the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 25, guess what Jesus calls His disciples along the road to Emmaus? You foolish men and slow of heart. Exact same phrase. He called His own disciples, you fools, because you have not perceived all that Moses has written. And then Jesus began to opened up the scriptures and, said, and began to explain to them um, all that the scriptures had spoken of him. And so Paul, in some respects, is actually following right along with Christ, being very Christ-like, that those who deny or are ignoring or not putting to use all the information that they have are acting in a foolish manner. So when Paul says, you foolish Galatians, He is not accusing them of insufficient information. He is not calling them ignorant. In other words, listen, you just don't have enough information. Once I give you enough information, then you're going to be able to understand this. He's calling them fools. In other words, you have sufficient information, but you are not being discerning and you are not putting that information to use. And so Paul uh, is claiming that you are fools. J.B. Phillips, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, renders this word foolish, Galatians, as you idiots. (laughs) I am hesitant to call people idiots. Maybe myself, I'm not, you idiot, John, but... But Paul is saying, you fools. And you are fools because you have all of the information you need, and yet you are acting in a manner that is completely contrary to the truth that you have. And that is foolish. He goes on and he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And this idea of bewitching... um, comes along with a concept of sorcery or being um, cast under a spell, perhaps being hypnotized in a stupor. I don't think Paul is saying that they that some witch or warlock has come along and cast a spell over them. He is simply saying you're acting in such a manner. You're acting in a way that... Um, 
You're walking around as though somebody hypnotized you and you're walking around in this stupor. Who has seduced you? Who has tickled your ears? Who has led you astray? Who has caused you to believe something that is not true? You know the truth and yet at the same time you've walked away from it. How can that happen? You fools. Why are you walking around as though you don't know the truth? And so Paul begins this very pointed theological discussion with this idea that you Galatians are acting in a foolish way. You're acting as though somebody has cast a spell on you and you know better than that. You know the truth, yet you have been drawn away. And then Paul begins what I think is an utterly brilliant defense of his gospel His gospel is one that God saves us by the mercies of God alone, through faith alone, and by Christ alone. And let me just say that the way Paul's first defense in chapter 3 is Trinitarian. That is, he brings in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's where I'm going to go. That what Paul's argument here is, is that the work of the triune God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is sufficient to save you and you need not add anything to the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you think for a moment that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working for your salvation doesn't do quite good enough, quite a good enough job, well, that's idiotic. That's the definition of an idiot. So that's where I'm going to go. And... Paul first describes the the work of Christ in our salvation. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, the idea behind this, this phrase, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, this idea of being publicly portrayed, um, I guess in the ancient days, in Paul's day when he would have written this, they didn't have the same forms of communication that you and I do. And so if they wanted to put an announcement for everybody to see, they wouldn't post it to their Facebook page or put it out on social media or anything like that. They wouldn't text it. They would write it on a bill, a placard. All right, a sign, basically. They would write it and they'd put it in the town square or in a place of public notice where people would gather and they would see this public notice and then they would know, oh, this event is happening or that event is happening or some important event has occurred or is about to occur. So it is a placard placed in a public um, position so that everybody will know the news. You foolish Galatians, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed in your midst you know this that is that the cross was a clear public portrayal of the work of Christ for us we might say that the cross is a billboard the cross is a flashing neon sign that you cannot miss nobody missed it It is a clear, public, explicit portrayal of the work of Christ. It is a wholly sufficient portrayal 
of the work of Christ. That is that the work that Jesus did on the cross in atoning for our sins is wholly sufficient. This is what is clear. This is what the cross portrays. This is the billboard. This is the flashing neon sign that Jesus humbles himself. He lives without sin. He demonstrates that he is Lord over sin, that he is Lord over death, that he is Lord over hell. He is Lord over sin by forgiving people of their sins. He is Lord over death by rising from the dead and raising people from the dead. He is Lord over nature by calming the storm. He is Lord over hell by casting out demons. He demonstrates that he is Lord over all of these things. He lives a perfect life in submission to the Father. He suffers for sins that are not His own. He bears God's wrath for our sins. He rises from the dead as an acceptable sacrifice to God. He ascends into heaven and He ever lives as our mediator. And you are going to add to that? Really? Are you so foolish? Paul is saying that the cross is utterly and completely sufficient. And the fool says, well, I don't know. Maybe not. That's an idiotic statement. You are a fool to believe that. And so, in summary of this aspect of the work of Christ in our salvation, is that the death of Christ for our sins, number one, shows how utterly lost we are. The death of the cross of Christ demonstrates how sufficient the work of Christ was to save us. And the cross should kill all self-reliance. And if we are to go back and erect a ladder of self-righteousness in order to obtain salvation, well, that's just foolish and idiotic. You think you can add to that? Oh, thanks, Jesus, for the cross. Now, let me do something because that wasn't quite good enough. That's a foolish statement and a foolish thought. And this is where Paul's going. Well, Paul's not done. I think, think, well, that's pretty good, man. That's a slam dunk. You can close the book and we can go our way. But Paul's not done. He says, well, consider the Holy Spirit. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? So Paul asked this question. Yeah, so, okay Galatians, you think you can supplement to your own salvation? Let me ask you, how did you get the Holy Spirit? How did that happen for you? Just a question. Now, from this we learn much about the work of the Spirit And we're going to see this as Paul goes through chapter 3. He actually says a lot about the Holy Spirit in uh, chapter 3. But one of the things we need to nail down is how Paul's the the close association that Paul ascribes to justification with spirit reception. That's kind of a... Let me unpack that. When we talk about justification, remember last week, remember how we defined justification? Anybody remember? Not guilty. It's a forensic term. It's a legal term. And it is the term that you would hear when the judge slams down his gavel and declares you not guilty. And in this case, the judge is the highest supreme judge in the universe. God himself has slammed down his gavel because of the work of Christ and declared you not guilty. Amen. That is an amen. And so... Paul now associates that not guilty verdict with reception of the Holy Spirit. And so we should note that there, are, there is no such thing as a non-spirit-filled believer. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. I used to, uh, my, my background after I became a Christian was a, a very Pentecostal experience. And, and we held a little different view. But when we took this church... Um, people would often ask me, well, are you a spirit-filled church? And I know what they meant. But I said, well, absolutely we're a spirit-filled church. Because every believer who is a believer has the Spirit of God dwelling within them. There's no such thing as Paul tells us so clearly, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Him. So first of all, we, we need to establish that one cannot divorce having the Spirit with being, a Christian, with being a Christian. The second thing we begin to see is that Christianity is much more than a, behave, a change of behavior. And I think sometimes we, we have this idea that, well, if you become a Christian, then what we're going to do is we're going to tell you, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't run with those who do. We've all heard that. And please don't get me wrong, morality is a part of being a Christian being a Christian. But the legalist can do that. I can erect enough rules and say, listen, dress this way, talk this way, cut your hair this way, and you can all achieve that. So I've said many times before, Christianity is not going from being an irritable person to a nice person. Your pharmacist can do that for you. Being a Christian is having the Spirit of God living His life, living the life of Christ out through you. Now, when He does that, I believe you might go from being irritable to being kind, and you might change some of your moral behaviors because the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Christ, is living His life through you. And Paul will get to this uh, later on in the book of the Galatians, dealing with the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit, but you'll have to wait for that sermon. It's a long ways down the road. But is the Spirit of Christ living out the life of Christ in the believer? That's what it means to be. Um, that's what it means to have the Spirit of in, in us. Paul said in last week in chapter two, verse twenty, "I have been crucified with Christ." In other words, I have died to my own self-righteousness. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so, just as Christ died, I died. But Christ didn't remain dead, and neither did I. Christ came alive and rose from the dead and he is now alive and just as he died and rose I died to self-righteousness and now I live, only now I live with the spirit of Christ animating, working his glorious holy life through me and so that's our first area of understanding the work of the spirit in the not guilty individual but we should also note that the spirit of God dwelling in us is evidence and assurance that you are a child of God that you've been born again when we get to Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 it is by the spirit of God and the assurance that we have in um, uh, possessing the spirit or maybe being possessed by the Holy Spirit it is by him that we cry out Abba Father Daddy Father it is by Him that Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, 12 and 13 that we've been sealed for the day of redemption. And this idea of being sealed for the day of redemption is the... I, mean, I know you've probably heard this, but the, the idea of being sealed for the day of redemption it really speaks of a down payment, maybe more accurately, an engagement ring. So the Holy Spirit is the engagement ring of a future uh, wedding. 
A down payment assuring that I'm going to come and pick up what I purchased. The engagement ring, the assurance that I'm going to come and wed the one that I promised to. Now, when we were in business, people would often put down down payments and that's not, then they'll come pick up their products. And I know that people have um, maybe been engaged and uh, one individual does not follow through. But God is not like that when God makes a promise, when God puts a down payment, when God uh, betroths you to himself, it is absolutely 100% certain that he will follow through with his commitment. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment that he will finish the work in you. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, in a nutshell. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so Paul asked this question. So did you receive this assurance, guarantee, by circumcision? Is that what happened? Just remind me, how did you get all that? How did you get this adoption into his family? How did you get Christ working his life through you? How did you get this... um, being adopted in the family of God and this assurance that God would finish the work that he began. How did that come again? Not again? Can you tell me? Did it come by something you did? Because I'm not clear on that. But he's not done. He goes on and he says, Are, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul is talking about you you began your Christian life uh, by faith are you now thinking that you can work it out through the flesh and the flesh has this idea of being it's that autonomous self it is the self that is independent of God, it is the life that is insubordinate to God and so Paul is saying did you have an experience with the Holy Spirit and now you're trying to live out your life independent of that Holy Spirit Folks, powerless Christians are those who live apart from faith. I want you to understand that at this point Paul is talking to Christians and we continue to live out our Christian life the same way we began it. And that is by faith. We continue to live our Christian life relying on the Holy Spirit. I will tell you this. If there is ever a time where I am victorious over temptation, it is Not because somehow I worked up the motivation to be victorious over my carnal desires. My flesh is... I love to sin in my flesh. If I'm ever victorious over the flesh, that part of me that is insubordinate to God, it is by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and not in my own strength and ability. Then says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if, it, if indeed it was in vain? Now, let's uh, kind, of, kind of deal with this word a little bit, this word of being of, of suffering. Um, this, the word is literally experienced, but, and it can be used in a positive sense or in a negative sense. If the idea is negative, then suffer, I think, is a very, very good translation. Um, but if it's a positive experience, then I, I don't know that suffer is necessarily our, 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 our best choice. And I know who am I to go against brilliant minds who translated the scripture because certainly I do not have their ability. But when I consider the 
the, the word and how it's used in this text, it seems to be a positive experience. But he, says, he says, you've experienced the Spirit, and you've actually experienced miracles being worked amongst you. So I, I think it's like, did you experience all of these positive works of the Holy Spirit for nothing? Did Christ give you His Spirit? Did God put His Spirit in you and do miracles because of your good deeds? Did the Spirit empower your salvation to live this powerful life because you were circumcised? Did the Spirit come upon you and dwell in you because you ate the right foods? Did you see His glorious majesty because you celebrated the right holy days? Or did the Spirit empower you because you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and His sufficient work? That's just all I want to know. You began in the Spirit and then you got swayed away from it. Why would you believe a message that contradicts your experience? You are fools and you are idiots. Paul then goes on and speaks about the work of the Father. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do he do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The he here grammatically would refer to the Father, and it would also, I think, and that's biblically consistent. In Acts chapter 1, wow, I made that text small, didn't I? Oh, oh, go back. I'll read it. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, gathering together Jesus, the he here, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. And the, what the Father had promised was the Holy Spirit. In, in that text, and then in, chapter, in Luke chapter 11, verses, verse 13, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So, we see here, both grammatically and biblically, that it is referring to the work of the Father. That is, that the Father then supplies you or furnishes you with the Holy Spirit. And we should note the the implications here in in this phrase or this word, He who provides or supplies you. I want you to understand that when God supplies or provides us with the Holy Spirit, He does not do it by drips and drabs. That when God provides the Holy Spirit to the not guilty, the vindicated individual, He does not portion out the Spirit, but rather He abundantly, lavishly, overflowing with great generosity provides you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given without measure. So God does not say, well, here's a little bit of the Holy Spirit. I hope you do well with it. No, this is the moment you are declared not guilty. You are overflowed, overwhelmed, abundantly supplied 
with the Holy Spirit. And this is why Peter tells us that we have everything that we need for life and for godliness. And this is why Paul tells us in the book of Colossians that in Christ you are complete because God the Father has abundantly, lavishly, generously poured out His Spirit up. And the Spirit of Christ now dwells within you and lives within you so that you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you in the life that you now live. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. So, quick summary of this. God bountifully, generously gives you the Holy Spirit who seals you, assures you of your relationship with God, purchased by Christ on the cross, which declares loudly the, the, the sufficiency of His work, and you think you can supplement that. That's Paul's argument. That's a brilliant argument. Here is God the Father. He's given you His Holy Spirit. Here's Christ who did all the work on the cross. And here's the Holy Spirit living His life out through you who has adopted you, who's assured you, who's the down payment. And you think somehow that you're going to supplement that. Well, that's just foolish. You'd have to be an idiot to think that. The Bible tells us in the Psalms that the fool has said in his heart that there is no God and here in Galatians Paul says the fool is the person who believes that they can earn their own salvation or supplement their own good works to achieve a not guilty verdict I would probably guess that at least in this church perhaps there are some fools uh, in the psalmist sense uh, amongst us today those who say in their heart there is no God perhaps that is you well that's a foolish position but I would probably hazard to guess that probably there are more Galatian type fools in our midst those who think that somehow we can add to the work of Christ in our salvation if we go through the book of Galatians, we are going to see that Paul is not saying that we are to live out a holy and righteous life, that we are not to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's not where Paul is going. Paul is talking about in order for you to enter into, to be declared not guilty, that the totality of that not guilty verdict falls upon God. It is Christ who died for your sins. His work is sufficient. Do not think for a moment that you can add something. Oh, well, I've sinned too badly. Maybe I can add something. No. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together to bring about your salvation. If you think you can add to that, you're a fool, perhaps even maybe an idiot. I am hesitant to call anybody an idiot, but it is foolish to think that you can add to Christ's salvation. So who then would be the wise person? If that's the fool, who is the wise? The wise is the person who believes that the gospel of Christ, that on the cross, Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture and that his atoning sacrifice was utterly and completely sufficient to cover and atone for your sins. That he bore the wrath of God completely on your behalf. That God in his holiness will judge sin and Christ bore that judgment on your behalf. 
And the wise will say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. That is the wise person. I guess I'd ask you, are you a fool today or are you a wise person? If for some reason you think, you know, I've been acting foolishly all, all my life. I want to become a wise person. My wife and I are here. We will be happy to spend time speaking with you about what it means to become a follower of Christ. What it means to be declared not guilty before the highest court in the land, in the universe, I should say. And we would love to sit down and talk with you about living out a life dominated and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God with Christ, believe me, Christ living His life through you. And we would love to do that. I know many people in our church would love to spend time talking with you about what that means and how to be a Spirit-filled believer living the abundant life that Jesus has promised. Let's stand and we'll pray.